Uh, firstly, we would like to thank Priyu for hosting this event and providing us with uh, this platform for dialogue and discussion. And as Greg mentioned, um, our journey in organizing dialogues in Lebanon has been instrumental in tackling the critical subjects uh, of reforms. Focusing on three fundamental uh, themes in our initiative, I mean, which were uh, society, economy, and policy. And since 2019, Lebanon has encountered an array of profound challenges that, left, that have left uh, a mark on our society and governance. This multifaced crisis has rippled through every aspect of life in Lebanon. So in addition of these uh, economic hardships, Lebanon grap grappled with unprecedented security challenges, exerting imminent pressure on its public institutions and its resources. The energy sector plunged into chaos with chronic power uh, cuts and fuel shortages were the very tough daily life. Moreover, the catastrophic explosion at the port of Beirut in August 2020 devastated an entire city and served as a stark reminder of a systematic failures in governance and infrastructure. So despite these profound uh, challenges in the year 2022 witnessed a significant shift in Lebanon's political landscape, the elections brought forth a block of new independent members of the parliament, often re referred to as reformists or MPs of for change. These elected representatives carry the aspirations and hopes of Lebanese population yearning for fundamental reform, enhanced governance, and a brighter future. Yeah. Today we have Brahim Naimni with us, one of the change MPs who won the elections in Beirut. So I will start by a very general question. What is really happening in Lebanon after the elections of 2022? So thank you, Khalid, and thank you, everyone, for having us. Um, what's been happening, I mean, it really goes back quite for a, a bit of history, and, and we need to talk about. Um, there has been a, a constant struggle with the current establishment from the, the Lebanese population. It has been proven throughout the recent history that this confessional consensus system was not able to, de to, to, to deliver anything uh, of service to the Lebanese people. So we've had numerous uh, historical milestones whereby we faced the political establishment, me as a ac uh, uh, particularly activist back then, to highlight how incompetent and uh, impotent this system was. In 2015, particularly, we had uh, a, a huge protest against uh, the establishment of the government, uh, United, uh, the United Government of Establishment uh, Traditional Forces, uh, where they couldn't even collect garbage from the streets. This was a huge milestone because, for me, um, as a Lebanese citizen, it was obvious for the first time that the state and the government was not able to deliver something just as basic as collecting garbage. And this for us was a, a kind of a, a huge uh, turning point in our understanding of how we should do politics in our country. Because until that point, the Lebanese people have been convinced that they should be resilient and accept the incompetence of these political, uh, traditional political uh, parties and take on themselves to, to have substitutes for the vacuum uh, that the state leaves behind when not being able to deliver the proper services to citizens. So for example, we are used to having 
uh, electricity shortcuts, we should get our own electric generators. We don't have public schooling, we should go to private schools. We don't have uh, proper healthcare systems, we get insurances, you know, and so on and so forth. So, but the garbage crisis, which cannot be handed on the individual level, and we cannot, as individuals, compensate for that vacuum, showed the Lebanese people exactly why they need their state, because there are some, cer some certain issues that they cannot do without collective effort through uh, proper governance. Okay? So this was a shift that started to accumulate over time. Okay? In 2016, there was uh, municipal elections, there was a huge uh, shift in the dynamics. It showed that there are a lot of Lebanese people against the list. Me, myself, I ran for elections 2016 uh, for mayorship of Beirut. We got 40% of the votes. Then there was the 2018 parliamentary elections. Again, we had very good numbers, but we couldn't breach. But 2019 was a time when we had what we call our uprising, or some people call it the revolution, where many of the Lebanese people hit the street saying that we are fed up with this system. And for the first time in history, the Lebanese people united from all sects, from all regions around the country, said we want something, something different. And that was, I mean, that was unprecedented in our history. And uh, for us right now, it, it for, for us it's a milestone where we say, yes, it's evident and it's proven that Lebanese people want change, but we know how big and how strong the political establishment is. And this is, is now our struggle with them. So after that, in 2022, we went into elections under the title of this uprising. We were able to get 13 uh, MPs into the parliament. And that was very important for us to show that this movement uh, has legitimacy and has a popular base. Because until that point, we were always contested or challenged that we don't have a proper uh, base and that uh, it was um, a very temporary uh, issue. So from there on, we, we understand the, the situation is now after 2022 is that this political establishment is not able to govern. They don't have, even though they have the votes, but they, they, they lost a lot of their legitimacy to run the country. Somehow the confessional consensus system also has, has came to a deadlock. They are not able to elect a president. They were not able to appoint a cabinet. They are not able to do any kind of reform. And we have been struggling since, I don't know, uh, one, almost one year now with the economic reforms. We had signed a staff-level agreement with the IMF to initiate uh, a number of reforms so we can uh, get our economy and our financial sector back on banking sector back on track. But since then, we were not able to implement any of these reforms, which shows and demonstrates how, uh, how sterile the system is. No. And now we have a huge gap between the Lebanese people and uh, the governing body or the government or the political establishment as a whole. And this struggle is leading to more and more uh, crippling of, of our country because we are right now at the bottleneck. The establishment is trying to regenerate itself by all means, taking uh, hostage the, 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 the presidency, for example, until today we were not able to elect a president. For them, 
you see they see it as an opportunity to um, strike a deal with the, some regional power and get some money to regenerate themselves out, outside the reform framework. This didn't happen yet. Um, but meanwhile, the Lebanese people pay the price of this stalling of uh, uh, reforms. So more and more, they lose legitimacy. The, uh, the other, our problem from the other side is we don't have enough power to, uh, to, to take their place. That's the problem. So we are a minority in the parliament, and yet we are not able to, to, uh, to take over. So right now we are in that particular uh, bottleneck that we are we're struggling to push for change, and they're, they are pulling back to take us back where we were, trying to, uh, as I said, regenerate themselves and waiting for some kind of moment and keeping the country hostage until they get a, 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 a regional maybe deal somehow uh, through what used to be, uh, I mean, historically uh, constant or uh, constant uh, international interference or internal affairs. So this has been uh, unfortunately uh, been uh, done over and over, but these political groups are used to taking advantage of such opportunities. So this is where we are right now. Um, this has resulted in a lot of um, setbacks on numerous, numerous, numerous levels, like our institutions are disseminating because many uh, governmental agencies and institutions are not able to function. Security, uh, army, security forces, all have been affected. Judiciary have been affected dramatically. They've been on strike right now for the past uh, two weeks. They, were, we are, they had been on strike for around a few months also. Um, our airport is threatened. We don't have enough money to run the airport. There are so many levels at which the public institutions are not functioning anymore. Um, and on the economic level, we, we, we see that the economic crisis has unfortunately um, been borne by the most vulnerable in our, in our society, especially the poor and the middle class. And this has led to a lot fleeing the country. This has been massive immigration. Many of the young people have left already the country with no way coming back because you know, the situation does not allow it. So this, is, this was a huge setback even for our future even if we get to reform today, we will be lacking a lot of our resources uh, that would uh, build the country back again. So that's another uh, uh, problem. A lot of the wealth have been transferred from the middle uh, income uh, class to more, uh, how do I say this? Uh, uh, it's been highly, it's more and more concentrated in the very few. And... Uh, we saw a lot of the policies that have been taking place has led to more and more uh, uh, imbalance in distribution of wealth. So that's another problem also we, that's going to be affecting us. Our banking sector has lost all confidence of all Lebanese and international, uh, our expats and all international institutions. So we have huge issues ahead of us, but the, the political establishments remain uh, and uh, stalling and keep taking the country hostage until today. For us, um, as, as change MPs, and, and I know how much uh, the Lebanese people have hopes on us, but unfortunately uh, there, is, uh, there is not m much that we can change 
But what we can do is keep on, and that's what we are doing actually, um, trying to organize more, trying to uh, do, uh, uh, conduct a different way of doing politics in parliament and in institutions to demonstrate how we can be closer to people, how we can expose a lot of the issues and a lot of the corruption that are taking place in uh, the institutions uh, and in the parliament, and at the same time, uh, remain close to our constituency and prepare for the next fight because we believe this is a very long fight um, that's going to take place. Nothing will happen and we will not be able to uh, turn the tables soon, but we remain uh, uh, persistent and insisting that we will continue the struggle until we do the change, even, to, even if it takes a long time. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for the update. But um, I also feel that, you know, like um, you had an, the experience of running to the elections before. But um, this time I thought that also we're getting more hopeful that we're organizing or more people are, are more concerned about politics in Lebanon, more participating more in Lebanon. And I think that's, that might, uh, might be a very good indication as well. But um, I want to also hear from uh, Mo about um, the economy, <laughs> which is basically our main uh, kind of issue right now. But also in my understanding that our Lebanese economy is a very small economy that could kind of be saved in a way, or what do you think? Yeah, um, thank you, Khalid. Um, as Ibrahim was saying, if, if we start, if we can start implementing reforms, yes, uh, financial and economic recovery is plausible, and it's it's the way to go. But the uh, the uh, the reasons why the, these reforms were not put in place because the political elite, the way they managed the crisis, though, and given the fact that they were the ones causing the crisis, they managed the crisis in a way to maintain their power rather than actually attending to the crisis and solving it. I'll give, for, for example, in the beginning of the crisis when the banks uh, defaulted and they blocked uh, depositors to have access to their money, the, at that particular point, um, a capital control was essential to be implemented so that the, the drain of uh, foreign reserves can be managed in a way so that the crisis will not be intensified. What happened was that political elite did exactly the opposite. Instead of implementing a capital control so that they can manage the, the outflow of, of uh, foreign reserves out of Lebanon, it was done in a way uh, that only uh, a small concentrated interest groups that mainly composed of politicians and bankers were able to have access to their funds, transferring their funds out of the country, while leaving the majority of the depositors without access to their funds. This is, gives an example of how the political elite was dealing with the crisis. So instead of attending and to the crisis and solving it, they were actually intensifying it. And this, this was uh, visible also in other policies, uh, which led to the uh, collapse of all public services, electricity, water, phones, roads, all, all the public institutions, they couldn't perform well. And the... This also changed the social fabric of the society. The, the middle class that was the main engine of the economy started uh, leaving the country. 
For example, uh, between 2021 and 2022, 350,000 people between the age of 20 and 30 left the country already. And these are, as you know, these are, this on, that does not only change the productivity of the economy, it also changes the social fabric of the economy. It's, we had a young uh, society before, and now the, the, the society is moving, becoming more, um, um, it's, it's aging, and you don't have the, the economic factors, and, uh, which basically depends on, the, on the young people to move the economy. As a, as a result, on, uh, on, this, uh, on other economic sectors, there was a huge uh, collapse also in small and medium enterprises that most of them uh, shut down their businesses. And other big industries, they shifted their production outside Lebanon. So this, all these factors, because, of, because uh, the political elite was not attending to the crisis, people started uh, as Ibrahim uh, was saying, the, the fake resilience that we have in Lebanon. So people start taking initiative just to save themselves on a personal level, on an industry level, on a, on a business level, on a company level, while the collective solution needed for the whole society to get out of the crisis was absent. Mm. And this, this is where our role comes, to bring back hope and put on the table the reforms needed for this collective effort to solve the, the society, uh, the crisis for the society at large, and not for certain special interest groups, which what's exactly the, the political elite is doing. Um, the, the the reforms uh, that, for for uh, for example, uh, we have bank secrecy in in Lebanon when we are one of the few countries. I think we're the only country in the whole world that we have still adopted. Bank secrecy. Imagine in a country with all these crises, accusation of people abusing the system and having access to their funds, and we cannot now know who are these people who actually got this uh, this uh, this access and were able to transfer these funds outside. We we after the election, the uh, there was a huge effort when the parliament was discussing, for example, the uh, bank secrecy law, because it was part of the essential part of the reforms. The, Brahim can say more about the, what the battles that were happening in the parliament in terms of negotiating just to push for the first law, this is, uh, under, uh, the bank secrecy law. The political elite managed in a way because of the way they, they managed the system. They, although although the, the law has passed, but it, it passed in a, in a twisted structure where it actually cannot be implemented. This is, this, is, this is an example that they're trying to do with all the proposed reforms by MF. Another example, the capital control, which needed to... I will go back to this uh, in a minute, but um, I also need to lift up the spirit a little bit with the youth. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, these have been uh, tough. Uh, well, I see that, um, you know, Dima and other activists, like, they give us uh, an inspiration of... Uh, of what Lebanon could be when we see that the youth are able to mobilize and organize. And it's kind of uh, marked, like for the first time, like the protests in 2019 had an organized youth independent of the sectarian uh, affiliation that marched in Lebanon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And how you were able to organize, what is the motivation now if uh, we're in the middle of all this crisis? And 
Yeah, so like starting, um, I'm gonna start in 2019 since the question was addressed at that time. So in 2019, when um, before the uprising began, uh, we had an issue, like a challenge that we were facing. Uh, we were anticipating the economic crisis because our tuitions were dollarized. Um, so we knew that there was a, a crisis coming our way uh, and we raised our voice against that in our universities. And we were, um, we were being silenced by university administrations, uh, by the Ministry of Education to a certain extent. And that was a couple of months before the uprising. So we were kind of like building the momentum. Uh, and, and it's happened that at that time we also had like student elections. So that a lot of, um, a lot of our campaigns was, was focused on that. So when, when the revolution started in 2019 and we took to the streets, it was um, it was at first very difficult to um, like organize and and like meet because you know we don't have the resources we don't have um, we don't have like the the uh, the power that other like youth and traditional sectarian parties have or the spaces as well. So uh, we used to meet separately in. Uh, in our universities, or sometimes in alternative spaces that are create that, that are very limited in the city, so so when we took to the streets, uh, we kind of created like a network across students uh, from different universities and and those that weren't also in universities, and a lot of high school students joined us as well. Uh, we used to create like meeting points, and uh, and we kind of. Uh, adapted the spaces that were supposed to be public spaces and that were taken away by a lot of uh, policies that were done in the past, economic policies actually, that were done in the past in the heart of the city. So we were able to uh, reclaim these spaces in a sense. And, um, and after that, for like two months, about two months, we stayed on the street every, uh, every day actually. And we, we we weren't just like sitting there. We actually had a lot of demands on a student and on a youth level because uh, we knew like that our education was at risk and our post-education, like so our employment later on was also at risk because uh, we we knew that the, uh, the collapse was gonna like affect that. So we tried to talk a lot about how we can fix it uh, but at the end of the day, it wasn't as we, like, there was COVID. And so the momentum stopped then. And uh, we continued to organize and we expanded. So even though we were in a couple of universities at that time, uh, we expanded beyond that to include all the regions in Lebanon. And right now we have uh, a lot of membership in our in our network and we were able and we are still able to like raise our voices and be vocal about like a lot of the youth and student issues and about all the challenges that we're facing from like uh, the immigration of the youth, uh, the unemployment, uh, how education is now uh, a luxury or a commodity that 
um, and that's how it was planned to be by the government. So, so yeah. Thank you very much. This is uh, good. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, now there you mentioned that um, one of the things that happened during the 2019 October 2019 is that the people were able, or the youth as well, were able to um, reclaim or take back the public spaces that we were kind of denied of. But as well, we we witnessed this um, that the society once again was engaged, and we were reminded of the ability that we are able, that the society is able to de defend itself against corruption. Uh, but now after this period of time we are faced as well, and we hear it a lot, especially like living in Norway, I hear it a lot like about the resilience of the Lebanese people, and you mentioned it earlier. Is this resilience turning to adaptation or? Yeah, um, you know Khaled, resilience, uh, the way it's been portrayed in Lebanon or has been related to the Lebanese people is, uh, for me, is not the same as the resilience that you see it outside Lebanon, you know? So it, somehow this notion is positive outside to be resilient. But for us, I mean, at least for me in Lebanon, being resilient is conforming to what the state provides you with. That they can be as incompetent or, inca or, or uh, celebrating it anymore, you know? We decide to stand against that kind of concept, you know, trying to uh, sugarcoat whatever uh, they throw at us. Uh, this is for uh, for me is a way to uh, uh, to uh, to promote uh, the kind of uh, uh, incapacity that they are doing while they are in, in government. So, for us, it's something that we fight against. We don't. We are fed up as Lebanese of taking matters that the state should be doing or the government should be doing on our uh, responsibility and it's not you know you can't just do everything yourself and uh, for example given the garbage crisis uh, this is one of the biggest issues you know even security level you know even security this is something that is happening now a lot of uh, areas are trying to look for to create their own um, security you know so this is becoming very critical and for us, it's not something the, the, the ordinary citizen should be doing. That's the responsibility. That's the basic of the social contract. You know, so for us, um, that kind of concept is is very problematic. But uh, I would understand how they would sell it outside Lebanon and sell it to even to the Lebanese people as an achievement or celebrate it as one of the Lebanese uh, uh, traits. You know, very much favored traits. Well, well we, don't, we don't see it anymore like that. You know, because things have gone um, so bad and deteriorated to an extent where we, there is no way we could accept. Uh, it's becoming such an unacceptable uh, situation. Um, but I think the Lebanese right now, since 2019, at least acknowledged that they don't want that establishment. Now, w what remains is if they will be able to develop their own political choices against those and this is something that's a bit um, we're struggling with because for the past I don't know over 30 years or so after the civil war right now uh, maybe it's worth mentioning that we these political uh, traditional political groups have been or any warlords during the civil war from 1975 to 1990 so we are governed basically by warlords um, and throughout their uh, their power, they were in power and charge, 
they have made sure to uh, eradicate all possible uh, grounds for building any political alternatives. Unions, uh, universities, any kind of political discussion, even public space, public transport as public space have been taken out. So any opportunity of the Lebanese coming together, having a discussion have been uh, undermined or uh, eradicated. And we feel right now we're trying to build from the very scratch the very basic infrastructure, social, cultural, political infrastructure, so we can start having these conversations again and connecting the Lebanese people together because that's another challenge is that um, throughout the past 30 years, the, the confessional uh, system has enforced a kind of pure identity politics for such a long time that it became the norm of politics. You know, people don't understand now, or don't know how to make choices beyond that. And that's very problematic. You know, very, very few think of that, but it is really a challenge to change even the culture of politics, or even have a discussion about uh, a policy or economy or whatever. So we face many challenges on those levels, but I think uh, uh, the Lebanese people as, as you mentioned, not as resilient, but they are very aware now of what they don't want, and we're trying to take them to a place where they decide what they want versus what, they, what the establishment offers. Yeah, well, that's, that's true, and, and we see how people um, you know, always came up with alternatives to replace the state or their need to be affiliated with the state, but uh, knowing that now we are in crisis, when we think about it, we know that it's inevitable to have reforms, and like, uh, and for example, when I get to think about it, like for example, in Lebanon we have almost 50 banks, if I'm correct, but in Norway the comparison is like few, like four or five maybe main main ba banks. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. So now, now that the the former uh, governor of the central bank in Lebanon, Riyad Salami, has finished his term. And he's not have been uh, like renewed, shockingly. And his deputy is now is uh, is in charge of his uh, uh, role. So he said a few days ago. I've seen that on the news that they will no longer support the um, the government in their failures. Kind of, is that true or is this uh, kind of a Lebanese way to turn around? Uh, um, uh, the main issue we have is the lack of accountability. In, in Lebanon, and this is the main crisis, because if we can hold those responsible accountable, then we can start the reform. A good example is what Khalid is talking about, the ex-governor of the Central Bank in Lebanon, who was the main uh, player in uh, articulating and managing the, uh, the financial crisis since 2015, and when all the... Uh, 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 those who follow what's happening and look at the the figures and the economic indications in Lebanon, they knew that we were going into uh, a bad uh, situation, uh, given the deterioration of the uh, foreign reserves at the central bank. The way he he the way he he managed this is by hiding the the truth and and coming up with. Um, uh, financial engineering that he himself designed uh, that uh, was um, uh, 
criticized and analyzed in a forensic uh, report um, pointing out that the, all the, uh, the financial engineering done by that time did not follow any international standard or any common accounting system. And it was basically very clear that he manipulated the whole thing and he was hiding huge amounts of debt within his balance sheet for the, for, for, uh, the year between 2015 and 2019. And when, and when any ad advisor or any follower in the, that sense was trying to claim that there is a big uh, gap b piling up in the balance sheet, they were, they were being silenced and they were being accused of uh, attacking the, the structure and the economy and the Lebanese fabric as a whole. So as a result, we, the, in 2019, they couldn't hide the crisis anymore. And it was obvious. Although it's very clear for everyone inside the country and outside the country, the ex-governor is accused of money laundering and, and he's uh, on the Interpol uh, agenda. And he's like one of the main uh, people responsible for that. And the Lebanese authorities, they don't know where he lives. So they can't capture him. This is, this is the, uh, the, the explanation or the justification they, they give to the people. And this lack of accountability is the main block for starting reforms. How, how can you initiate reform if you cannot start holding these people accountable? And, what, and we've been in this uh, deadlock for the past four years. And what, what the political elite is trying to uh, offer for us now is let's not go back and hold everybody accountable for what happened. Let's start over. Let's just forget what happened. Forget all the transfer of wealth. Let's not. How can, how can we f uh, fix a gap that huge without holding these people accountable? And what, what's being said on the government is exactly what can be said on the bankers. Bank owners, they were in bed with the political elite. We have, we have so many banks in Lebanon that are 100% owed by politicians. And that relationship was designed in a way so that they will benefit from these high interest rates pay, paid from the depositors' money to these bankers. And these bankers, they had access to the money at the bank where they blocked it to all other depositors. And so the suffering that was passed on to the society where we had now almost between seven, more than 75% of the Lebanese population is below the poverty line because they all get paid in Lebanese lira. Yeah. Only a very few percentage get paid in, in dollars. And this difference is growing up with time because we did not yet fix the main crisis in terms of exchange rate, in terms of public institutions, the public debt, and the financial gap within the banking system. Yeah, and like I brought, now I see, now I see like, um, that this is, this is uh, affecting everyone also like um, students largely. So um, I need to hear from you, like, because I know that our hope in Lebanon is with education because this is, this was one of the few sectors that were, wa was kind of uh, doing good before the crisis. But can we hear more from you? Like, what would you like to comment? Well, um, so the landscape in Lebanon is that we only have one public university and all the other universities are privatized. 
So we already had uh, more or less like high tuition fees if you want to be admitted into like uh, a, a good private university. And um, after they dollarized the tuition, of course, across different universities, it has different kind of uh, uh, systems. But like even in the cheapest private universities, it still became a lot for people to pay. So not everyone can now go to like uh, to like university to get a higher education. And if you want to enroll in the public university, the public university has been uh, is is still taken over by like the traditional sectarian parties, and uh, each and like it lacks a lot of resources. Uh, the teachers are always almost on strike, so there is never like uh, a normal semester there. And so the people, like the, the, the students, especially those who go, who go to the public university, are like suffer a lot from the conditions that the university is in. And now that after the, um, the, the tuitions have like skyrocketed, it has become impossible to like, um, to like pay for an education, even in uh, even in schools like in high schools and in mint schools, it's almost the same thing, but of course, like at a different rate. So, a lot of the youth are forced to immigrate. A lot of them are choosing to leave the country because in other uh, countries uh, they can get like almost a free education or uh, or scholarships. So uh, they're better off there. So we're losing a very huge portion of the youth starting like 18 and and above those who are who are uh, starting university so I think um, this is like the most important challenge now because the whole education sector is in danger not only for the students but also for the teachers because their salaries are almost also negligible so it's um, so it's really like a tough situation mm. but like We've been trying to find uh, solutions, um, and there, there's like always this collaboration between students and the teachers across private and public universities and schools to find like the best way to go forward. Um, but like uh, the progress is uh, is not very significant compared to how big the crisis is so there need to be like bigger reforms on all levels and all sectors and not only on a specific one because all of them affect each other yeah um yeah but that that also make me go back to 2019 when we were starting to see some progress as well in in the topic of freedoms because we kind of took it for granted for a very long time that lebanon is the country of freedoms in the middle east and um I mean, after this, after 2019 and during the protests, I've uh, we've noticed the emergence of uh, independent media, people who start to speak up more. Um, what is the situation right now on this, like about freedoms in general in Lebanon? Well, as a result of 2019, like you mentioned, there have been. Um, a trend in rising independent media outlets, especially on uh, online, okay, not maybe the traditional medias. Um, 
But along that, there have been also a lot of crackdown on freedoms from another side. Because when you find that when the establishment um, and the political, traditional political uh, parties find themselves incapable of delivering whatever they need to deliver to the people, then they have to shift the attention to something else or they have to silence whoever talks about it. And this has been happening constantly, especially with activists speaking their minds online, journalists exposing corruption. Just yesterday we were following up on one issue of a journalist who has exposed some corruption in one of the courts and she was detained for not in a legal way and we had to, as deputies, intervene and say that this was illegal, etc. So this is happening quite frequently lately and uh, we see that with the rise of these local militias again that the public space has been slowly taken over so we see how that the situation is disintegrating the whole system of freedoms and protection of uh, speech uh, is is uh, is being seriously threatened now um and uh, i think this is coming as a way that the establishment looks at it and no, it's necessary for them to contain whatever uh, alternative voices or alternative uh, uh, narrative is out there that would expose them and expose their incompetence. So right now, I'm not so sure that we are still the country of freedoms that we used to be before, but we will definitely fight back. The, the, the issue of freedom is very, uh, how do I say this, intrinsic to the Lebanese culture. You know, it's something that we take very much proud of and pride of, but I think as well um, it has taken uh, a second degree of priority due to the economic situation. So under the title of uh, uh, priorities, you see many people now advocating that, yeah, that it's not time to discuss freedoms. And this is very problematic for us because the basis of democracy is freedom and you cannot have a proper governing structure without democracy or freedom. So the, it's, it's becoming a cultural issue for me. It's not just a political issue, and that's what's becoming dangerous. But uh, I think there are uh, high awareness in, the, in a lot of the uh, civil society and uh, us as deputy MPs to really confront that narrative and not allow to take more than it, it, it yani, more than its real uh, uh, weight and push back as much as we can so it doesn't really become uh, a fact of life here. Yeah. But I mean, like, also, like, I see that people are pushing mm. because every time that any of the journalists or any of the activists is taking issue as for long hours, you see that the community is fighting back. There is a certain, yeah. There's some united fronts that are have been organized to to uh, to fight back on that front. So a lot of organizations, NGOs, civil society, activists, politicians, they're coming together to protect that last, I mean, um, pillar of our democracy. It is it is happening, but less of a degree on the on the popular level. That's that's it. That's uh, the threat here. As well, more, more like with the youth. The youth are now very are very concerned with the topic of um, freedoms. So, uh, from your experience, 
what have been the um, also like a, a, a big challenge to that and what are the positive aspects that we need to take in consideration maybe yeah so like um so that's a very important topic for us like it's it's one of the main causes like that we always talk about and and we advocate for on all levels so um the freedom of like expression uh the freedom of just like existing is um is very important uh so like over the past couple of years so this hasn't just like begun now it has been like ongoing for so many for so many years in the past like a couple of years in lebanon so um one of um so whenever something like that happens whenever someone gets uh called for questioning a lot of us like from the youth were like uh called in for questioning a couple of times uh and and always it's 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 just for intimidation most of the time so what we do is that we have already created a collective uh community and a space for people to uh always be there for each other in a way so there's always like solidarity so whenever like an activist or a or a journalist or a comedian an artist a performer anyone gets called in or we're always there uh waiting outside uh trying to and we have all of these lawyers who are always working like pro bono and and we're always we we created this alternative system so we created this alternative community uh and it's 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 very like it's interesting because because when we go there everyone knows each other then you know and over the past couple of years so a couple of years back there was uh this concert uh by a band that was uh, uh that was threatened constantly so they canceled the concert so what we did was we created an alternative concert so that um so this was like one of the ways that we pushed back or that we uh or we 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 reacted to like the 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 oppression of of our freedom um so i think there are many ways that we that we like resist and this and and this resistance in all forms i think like it's driven a lot by by the youth and by the students because we talk about this a lot on our campuses even in like our student elections for example it's it's one of the main things that we uh that we talk about and even in our in our like student councils uh we try to advocate for having a lot of like uh um like eradicating like censorship even from like the administrations of the universities and not only from the government so even from the institutions that we are in and i think uh that's very well needed right now because that's like the thing that's left like our spaces that we created uh the community that we created so for always being uh limited by how much we can talk or like express ourselves i think that will lead to an even worse like situation and i think like we're on our way to that thank you dima <coughs> um i i've been also like now thinking that when we are discussing lebanon Lebanon does not only concern Lebanese people living in Lebanon but as well like the host communities of refugees in Lebanon and i see that now if the Lebanese people are like going through this uh, very strong challenges i 
I would like as well to to look into the challenges that the, um, the communities like the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon have been suffering uh, since a very long time, and now the Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Um, I would like to hear your perspective on it as well. And mm. Okay, so on the refugees level, I think, and we have to distinguish the or differentiate between the Palestinian case and uh, the Syrian refugees case. Um, the Palestinian refugees, um, of course, you know, let's go back, back in history. Um, they have been part of now our fabric, uh, and especially at the local level where they, we have Palestinian camps. And just recently we were having meetings with uh, oh, it's called uh, you know, the Committee of Dialogue, Palestinian-Lebanese Dialogue. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a department in the Prime Ministry where they are trying to find a, a solution of how we can provide the proper rights for the Palestinians. And this has been discussed just recently, um, their civil rights, basically. Um, and I think they've reached a very good level, and we're discussing now passing a bill in the parliament about that particular point. So, because uh, what have been, yani, the Palestinians enduring in Lebanon, post at least civil war, has not been acceptable at all. Um, not to mention what was happening before, but right now, any and of course, there remains the Palestinian arms, and this is something that is part of the negotiation that should be happening, and it will, it will be happening, uh, and it is happening uh, right now. But I think that is going in the right direction. Um, on the Syrian level, now that's a very different issue. Because um, we have, we don't have exact number of how many Syrians we have in our country, but we have a huge number. Some say one million, some say one and a million and a half. Who exaggerate want to say two million? But um, you know, the Syrian refugees issue um, is is really putting a lot of pressure on the Lebanese uh, economy, society, and but there is certain scientific way of going about it. Populist way that are ha in Lebanon is not the right way. Because there have been some in major populist narrative happening that we need to push them outside, bring, send them back to, to their country. Well, we know that the issue is not even local. You know, you have the Bashar Assad regime who will not accept those refugees back. So that's, that's another challenge. So but the, the problem with the refugee, Syrian refugees now is that because at the time, 2011, when the first wave of uh, refugees came into Lebanon, there has been no policy of how to, or strategy to, to handle the situation, or to deal with the refugee situation. And since the situation was left, I mean, let's say fair, let's say, um, this has resulted in a lot of social friction, you know? fueling these populist and, uh, uh, narratives in the country. Like you have now major competition on the low paid jobs between Lebanese and Syrians, this creating friction uh, about demographics as well. Uh, so so this, is, this is a little bit critical and we need to really address it in a calm way. And we've been always saying we need proper at least data on what is the situation right now on the ground. You can't just provide a strategy on, over nothing. Because 
historically we had around 300,000 of Syrian workers even bef before the refugees crisis. So like this is some this is one segment of the Syrian population in the Lebanese and, and Lebanon that that is should be dealt with differently than the refugees and so on and so forth. You can just keep on dissecting these to to see how you can manage. But right now we don't know where the where the Syrian refugees are, how they are spread, where the concentrations, what is their legal situation. It's a very complicated file, but the problem remains is that the government is not doing any uh, any initiative in that direction and leaving a lot of space for a populist narrative to uh, take lead in that regard and creating a lot of uh, polarization in the country around it, which will never be helpful to the, neither to the Lebanese nor to the Syrian refugees. I'm under the impression that the Lebanese uh, politicians like classical uh, sectarian parties have been dealing with the um, Syrian refugees as a... Um, probably a way to kind of uh, ma make use or like abuse the international community into pumping more money into Lebanon. And this is something I, I want your opinion on, like with the economy in Lebanon and like with the populist narrative of that the Syrians or like the Palestinians or refugee communities are kind of taking the jobs of Lebanese or affecting our economy uh, in a bad way. I would like to hear also about um, your perspective on as you were saying, Khaled, the, uh, the political elite in, in Lebanon, just like the way they deal with any crisis, the way they dealt with the Syrian refugee crisis, they thought of how they can benefit themselves from it. So they were actually blackmailing the international community to get their money, to get some money from them, with the intention of directing these funds to help the Syrians. But in practice, what was happening, all this money was being channeled in, a diff in, diff in different ways. It wasn't actually reaching. The, the main objective, hence the suffering that has been continuing and fueling up with the Syrian refugees. And the mixing up between the Syrian refugees and the Syrian workers, because we had lots of Syrian workers in Lebanon operating before the crisis, and they were part of, of the economy. But also, at that level, it, because it wasn't organized, and the, we, they... Uh, they were being abused also by Lebanese employers. So all the uh, Syrian workers in Lebanon, they were not allowed to be part of the social security in Lebanon. They wouldn't get any benefits. They wouldn't get the, 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 the wages that the Lebanese will get. So they were underpaid. They were, so they were being abused in a way, and they were not organized, and they were not structured. And this fueled up, and it got mixed up between the refugees and workers and who is getting benefits from the UN, who's actually benefiting from the system. So the lack of a common strategy of how to deal with refugees left all these channels up for grabs. And all political parties from all different sects, they deal with it with the fact not to actually address the real problem and, 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 and put on the table some plausible solutions, but rather how can we ourselves benefit? How can we talk to a country where we can actually get some money helping the Syrians but actually reaping the benefits of ours? When now we're talking about like uh, these issues as well, like now we also have been hearing a lot this narrative in Lebanon about like how the international community or some actors in the community, international community are kind of sanctioning us in a way or that and this is the result of our kind of crisis. Um, at the same time, we see a lot of actors in Lebanon kind of linking themselves to like other regional or international powers in the sense of powers. So uh, this is kind of a sword, like a double-edged sword. Like, mm -hmm. can you 
can you give me a little bit of your so whenever this uh, political uh, regime fails they need to throw that failure on someone else okay basically the narrative of of us being under siege no this is a narrative that's been basically disseminated or propagated by Hezbollah specifically, saying that uh, we are under siege, and that's why we're not getting any support from outside. And where, whereas this is basically simply false. Because the failures, they really come from within. The corruption comes from within. The who robbed the country, they come from within. The, many of the countries, they have constantly and systematically over the years supported the Lebanese state on numerous levels, but this ha money has disappeared. Um, now, at this particular point in time, most of the countries have, it seems to me that they have given up on Lebanon. This is something, I mean, came in, this is also something historically unprecedented. This political regime had constantly counted on the support of many uh, foreign countries for aid, for uh, funding, etc. Um, but now it seems that they have taken a step back because they realized that the more we support this corrupt regime, the more things will get worse and they will ne we will never get any reform done. So basically, it's just throwing their people's money. So when these people give up, when these countries give up, it's not just because they, we are there putting this country under siege. It's because they've just given up on our country. And it's because, again, the international community, it's not, it's not the Red Cross. You know, it's not an NGO. It's not charity. A lot of the, a lot of the, the, the support comes with a, with a purpose. You should do reforms, like, for example, the IMF now. The IMF, as I said, you have signed an SLA, a staff level agreement, a year ago. Four of the basic legislations that they have requested for over a year have, nev have never been completed. They're trying still to maneuver around them, trying to, uh, to play around, not to deliver. Whose fault is that? The IMF was ready to support with $2.8 billion if we can get an agreement on a program. But you understand how this uh, failure comes from within, and thus you will not get any support. So it's not uh, that we are under siege at all. You know? It's just about that we, are, we have failed as Lebanese to, uh, to set up our, our government and our country and run it by ourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been very interesting. Uh, and I mean, like when we were talking and discussing, me and Greg, about like this uh, event, uh, we, had, we had in mind that we know that you are activists. We know that you are still engaged. We are still, uh, we want, we are looking into how the courage that you have. And we are sure that you probably are hopeful. That's why you keep your battle. Is this true? And with this, we're going to end uh, the discussion and we'll open the floor for questions. Um, for me, I mean, hope is all I see in our country, you know, ever since whoever witnessed 2019 or October uprising cannot see but hope, despite all the setbacks, despite all the deteriorating situation, um, you can see how the Lebanese 
keep on fighting day to day to maintain their living, to maintain their presence in the country and, and keep our roots and trying to stand against the culture of immigration, start to stand against culture of hopelessness. Um, I see a lot of uh, our youth like Dima and others and dedicated people like Muhammad here who have dedicated a lot of their time for, for this fight and for the struggle. Um, many uh, are joining, but again, the challenge is very big and we have to manage our expectations. It's gonna take a lot of time, but the opportunity is there. The Lebanese in 2019 said that they are fed up with this, and but we need to prepare ourselves to be a proper or a mature political alternative so we gain the people's trust, the Lebanese people's trust, and push back uh, on the political, uh, traditional political establishment. And now we're going to open the floor for uh, questions. Thanks for a very interesting and very, very sad uh, stories you're telling us. Um, but I, uh, I'm glad to see that you're still smiling, <laughs> that there is some hope. When I'm listening to you and this elite, I mean, you have so many of your youth who are migrating. What about this elite, this corrupt elite? Are, they, are there signs that they are about to leave from a sinking ship? And that would be like, I mean, running away from their responsibility, which would be very bad, but still, the situation you describe is like, I feel, oh my God, if only these people could leave, if some of these significant leaders could leave Lebanon, I mean, are there any signs that they are also running? If, if, if they... Left, yeah, we have, we, we have two who've left already, like Saad Hariri and uh, Riyad Salemi, who was the governor of Central Bank. Saad Hariri was uh, a very prominent Sunni figure. Okay, so these are from the traditional political parties who already left the scene. Um, okay, if, if they would just magically disappear, it would be something great. But I think... Um, they are here for a reason now, okay, that for, for us as Lebanese to make an intentional and very and highly aware choice of to remove them. And that's how we can build political alternatives. If them disappearing by their own, um, although something we would like to, to happen, but it will deprive us from the experience of building our own muscle and our own capacity and our own maturity and our popular base, to push them democratically outside. And this is, I think, is our, this is the challenge that we should take on. In learning how to organize, learning how to, f to create alliances, learning how to formulate our own narratives and our own objectives and priorities, and then push them out democratically. And this is something that would be, for me, a sustainable solution for our democracy. Hi, um, I'm a second generation Lebanese uh woman here in Norway, and I'm very curious to uh, learn more about the youth, because you mentioned that uh, over 300,000 youth had left Lebanon the past uh, three years. Um, what about those that are uh, not leaving? I just want to hear more about those that are, they have the opportunity to leave, because I know that uh, there are millions of Lebanese families outside of Lebanon that can give these opportunities for the youth in Lebanon, but that are choosing not to leave. And I know for myself that I feel uh, like I want to go back. And it's so typical that it would be in, in the, the environment that it is right now. Um, but uh, yeah, just really want to hear about those that are 
kind of uh, part of the uh, the fight uh, by choosing to stay in the country. Yeah. So, um, so what's happening is that there's a lot of people that are leaving, but a lot of people are like willingly choosing to stay, and these people are the people that are actually active, uh, politically active, and they form like uh, the student the student network that's Mada that's right now um, the students and youth network because right now uh, the people that are choosing to stay they are the ones who are like fighting the fight and um, and I feel like because they feel a need like to give back uh, to their country more or less and because they they have like a political vision which is part of like uh, what we have started in 2008. They wanted, they want to see a democratic, secular uh, country that has social justice and uh, that has that advocate that advocates for freedom. Uh, that's um, that's inclusive to everyone. So we have all of these ideas. And if we can advocate for them within our campuses and schools and universities, then we want to do it as well on a national level. So when these people stay, uh, they kind of create and build the momentum for the social movement across the country. So there are people that are leaving because if they get a chance, then they take it. But also some of them, like you said, have the chance but want to stay as well. And I think these are the people that are actually lifting up like our our country. I just want to add uh, one little thing is that also like um, in Lebanon, I've noticed this with a lot of the diaspora because there's a lot of uh, immigration from Lebanon. But Lebanese people are still as well very much connected, even if they are abroad and they are still uh, if they are activists, they're activists, even if they are outside of Lebanon. So, I mean, that also gives me hope uh, in the sense of, like, that if we can return one day and be part of that. But, but also because, like, an indication of what Khaled was saying was during the parliamentary elections, a lot of, like, the votes came from the diaspora. And a lot of the votes that went to the opposition was from the youth that were voting for the first time in the previous election. So that was like an indicator of that generation that wanted to change how things were. Yeah, I would like to add something on that, if you may. The, the immigration, okay, in Lebanon has become a culture. We were just discussing this last night, yeah. remember? How do we make, and this was an, it's, it's a constant internal debate between oneself and, him, and herself or himself, why do I stay in such a place? You know, and for me, it is staying in Lebanon. It is kind of a resistance, you know, because I have personally seen this myself. I'm I was born outside, you know, as to an expat, and raised outside, and came back at college time back to Lebanon. It's it's very different. But what I realized is that immigration is not just a culture; it's a system. You know, it's an economic and political system to maintain the, the political establishment in place. I will explain how. The more we uh, uh, reinforce this idea that immigration is accessible and it's normal, you relieve the, the government from doing their job 
from creating jobs, from finding social security, from providing healthcare, etc. And it becomes a kind of an income from them through remittances. You know, I was once on, on a plane with a going to Saudi. Uh, I'm original urban planner and architect, so I used to travel back and forth to the Gulf for profession reasons. I was on the plane with uh, one of those consultants who work in uh, one of these big four firms. And he was telling me they hosted once ex-Prime Minister Senyura, you know. And the, 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 young, the younger of these employees, they gather around him and he was telling me, we, we talked to him, Mr. Prime Minister, we would like to go home. When, can, when will we be able to go back home? We want to live in our country. You know, you, know, you know what he replied to him? We want you to leave. We want you to leave. This is the system. It's, it's kind of exporting. Yeah, and it's such a dehumanizing concept that you use your own people as commodities to export to relieve your pressure, of, to relieve yourself from pressure of uh, serving them and at the same time use them to send uh, hard currency back home. Such an inhumane process. So for me, staying in Lebanon is a kind of resistance again to this establishment narrative. So uh, I wanted to put a question towards you uh, regarding accountability. Uh, in your opinion, what's the best way to go about this when the state organs themselves are refusing to, to put these people criminally uh, or even civilly um, accountable for their, their corruption and uh, their additions to the failures of, uh, of the, the state towards the people? Well, they succeed in, 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 uh, in, in manipulating the judiciary system, and that's why there that we we have a lack of accountability. For example, uh, the, the ex-governor has been in, in interrogated several times, but he was never been uh, uh, held accountable for what for what happened because of the um, manipulation that the political elite has over. Any aspect of uh, a public institution in Lebanon, and so there is no, the starting point for that is the reform within the, the judiciary system, because now it's in the hand of the political elite. If we have an independent judiciary system, then this will be your starting point for holding them accountable. They, um, and so if you can get the judiciary system to operate independently of the political and not listen to their orders and not obey their orders, because now the way it's structured, the political system appoints the, these judges and they actually give them their benefits and give them their promotions. So in a way, these judges, they report back to their boss, who is, their, who the, who is a politician. So this needs to be reversed. And then this is how you can start accountability. And also, like, uh, if I may add, that there have been as well like a lot of attempts to uh, to uh, enact a law about uh, about that. And as well, there is uh, like now the judges in Lebanon, like some of the judges in Lebanon, they have the club of judges. It's like an alternative syndicate or a body that represents them. And then they have been very progressive in publishing and commenting on like major events. So it is an in motion, and in my opinion, it will take time. But uh, I hope we, we would reach that as well at some point. Hi, thank you for uh, the presentation. Um, I moved to Oslo three years ago uh, after I have, like many in Lebanon, lost friends in the explosion and uh, my, my savings. 
uh, I couldn't resist that. And um, also with, with that, I still uh, really care and love for, my, uh, for Lebanon. And uh, that's why I'm here today. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it really gave hope when we saw uh, that we are represented in the parliament because I believe in the revolution that happened in uh, 2019. Um, how uh, you mentioned that uh, one of the things you are working on uh, now, uh, my question is for Brahim. Uh, you said that uh, you are organizing. Can you tell us more about that? Orga organizing for what? And are you waiting for a time, a specific time to act? Or what, what can you, yeah, can you tell us more about what are you organizing? Um, okay, so this is very super local stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, Many of this, what we call revolution, change groups, who very, lots of them, we have numerous number of them, um, who were part of the revolution, whether within the center, of the, within the capital, or over the regions, have, have sprung up since 2019, okay? They have been a few before, but after 2019, we had so many of those, okay? Um, it was very challenging, and we witnessed this during the elections, to unite those um, groups together uh, for these, what we call the change lists, okay? We were able to, 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 to unite many of them, but after the elections, we found that, or during the elections even, through the preparation of these lists, um, there were a lot of discrepancies, there were a lot of uh, uh, different point of views on major political issues, so there was a lot to learn from that point in time. Right now, we are in the phase where we are trying to uh, create a framework that would allow for these groups to come together, not just in Beirut, but all over Lebanon. So taking into consideration the uh, regional diversity, confessional diversity, um, political diversity to an extent, and try and ally, create a kind of front together so we can face the establishment. This is not easy, you know, because it's very difficult to bring uh, different parties together and align even for, uh, for, 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 for uh, just a phase or a temporary solution or for one battle, I would say. Um, and it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of negotiations, but, uh, and it takes a lot of creativity also to bring these people together without them feeling that they've lost their identity, their political identity, and at the same time, allow for the, uh, for the audience, for the general public, to, to understand that this is not uh, just any alliance. It is a consistent and a clear alliance on clear objectives, okay, and a clear political identity. So uh, this is something we are working on, but I'll tell you, it's something very challenging to, to, uh, to deliver. I wish we had that some time ago because uh, we as MP believe that it's an essential uh, cover and platform that we need for ourselves as MP and for people to work. Because now, right now, uh, each one of the MPs or different groups, they have their own teams, uh, but, they, are, but they, they will not on individual level be able to confront or face the establishment or people demands or people expectations. So it's not easy to bring it together, but something we are and systematically working towards. Hopefully, 
I was just saying today to the team that uh, my, our, my target is within one year, we should have something uh, out there for people. Yeah. And our trip here made it clear for us that organization is the main first building block for any political change that you can start with. Um, so we're running out of time and also like uh, I will end it now but I will add just one more thing and this is I, I think is part of the visit of this delegation to Norway is to monitor and learn from functioning systems and also with the organizational things Norway have been very much leading in like a lot of the organizational things so I believe uh, first I want to also like uh, thank Noshk uh, for Kielp for helping on this initiative and this exchange of knowledge is essential for us to kind of try to see what they can adapt back home. So on this note, <laughs> thank you very much, uh, everybody. And um, we hope to see you soon again. Thank you. Thank you very much.